As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that digs up the past, even when those involved would rather it stay buried. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're putting on the Ritz to talk about the untimely demise of Frankenstein on Broadway. The day was January 4th, 1981. A lavish Broadway adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was shuttered after a single performance. With a budget of roughly $2 million, the production was the most expensive non-musical in Broadway history at the time. There have been bigger, more expensive missteps since then, but the failure of Frankenstein remains a potent reminder that spectacle is no substitute for strong storytelling. The story of Broadway's Frankenstein began in 1979 when the show debuted to good reviews at the Loretto Hilton Repertory Theater in St. Louis. It was the first play written by the theater's production manager, Victor Gialanella, and was conceived as a quick and easy way to fill an open slot in the theater schedule. Veteran producer Joseph Kipnis saw the show during its two-month run that spring and immediately began brainstorming how to bring it to Broadway. He hired Tom Moore to direct and brought in Casablanca Records to back the project as a co-producer. Armed with a budget of a half a million dollars, the team set to work on translating the show to Broadway, hoping to hold the premiere in early 1980. It was an ambitious timeline especially since the team had decided to make Spectacle the true star of their show. In lieu of show-stopping musical numbers, Frankenstein hoped to win over viewers with massive, state-of-the-art sets and movie-level special effects. That approach caused the budget to balloon exponentially. The show used eight different sets for its prologue and ten scenes, an extravagant amount of scenery for a Broadway production, especially for a non-musical. Further complicating matters was the way scene transitions were handled. 
Most set pieces were designed to rotate into view using a giant turntable, while others came swinging in from the rafters attached to rigging. Pulling off those transitions required the work of 35 stagehands, about three times the number used in an average show. The payroll for that unusually large crew added significantly to the show's cost, as did the elaborate special effects designed by movie tech whiz Bran Farron. Among the most expensive was a 1.5 million volt Tesla coil, the towering centerpiece of Dr. Frankenstein's lab, which threw off real sparks between 8 to 12 feet in length. To add further gravitas to the moments of destruction and creation, Farron also brought in the largest sound system ever used on Broadway at that time. The aim was to deliver spectacle at a scale never before seen on stage, and Farron and the producers spared no expense to do just that. Unfortunately, there were drawbacks to that high level of immersion. For one thing, the sets were too large and numerous to be moved for an out-of-town tryout. That common industry practice normally gives producers time to fine-tune a show before its premiere on Broadway, a luxury that Frankenstein literally couldn't afford. The show's premiere was eventually pushed from spring 1980 all the way to December, and then again to January of the following year. There were numerous reasons for the setbacks, but chief among them were malfunctioning special effects and some behind-the-scenes turmoil in the cast. A recent Yale Drama School graduate named William Converse Roberts had landed the lead role as Victor Frankenstein, but following a poor reception during previews, he was fired and ultimately replaced by a more established actor, David Dukes. Other cast members included Diane Wiest as Victor's fiancée, Elizabeth, and Keith Joachim as the creature, a.k.a. Frankenstein's monster. Joachim had originated the role at the Repertory Theater and managed to beat out a host of other actors to keep the part on Broadway. Another notable bit of casting was John Carradine as the blind hermit who befriends the creature. Amusingly, Carradine had played a small role in the same scene 45 years earlier in the Bride of Frankenstein movie starring Boris Karloff. His reunion with Frankenstein on Broadway would be the actor's final stage role. The production lurched its way through rehearsals and 29 preview shows in late 1980. By the time it finally premiered at the Palace Theater on Broadway on January 4th, its cost had quadrupled from $500,000 to $2 million. The reception inside the theater was mostly positive, but shortly after the final curtain fell, the reviews hit and they were anything but kind. The show was universally panned, but it was New York Times critic Frank Rich who delivered perhaps the most scathing review. Although he was impressed by Frankenstein's special effects, set design, and by Tom Moore's direction, he described the overall narrative as, quote, plotting and lead-footed, a talky, stilted mishmash that fails to capture either the gripping tone of the book or the humorous pleasure of the film. Rich also took issue with the production's musical score, which he found to be derivative and heavy-handed. But his most damning criticism by far was that the show didn't elicit much of an emotional response one way or the other. We feel nothing, Rich wrote, except the disappointment that comes from witnessing an evening of misspent energy. Frankenstein may be the last word in contemporary theatrical technology, 
but its modern inventions are nothing without the alchemy of plain old-fashioned drama. Frankenstein's producers met the following morning and agreed that because the reviews had been so negative, the show would shut down, effective immediately. The decision was quickly second-guessed after several cast members volunteered for pay cuts and producers offered to waive their royalties. In the end, though, it just didn't make financial sense to resurrect the show. By one estimate, they would have needed to drum up an additional $400,000 to retool the show and air TV commercials to counteract the bad press. And since Frankenstein had already cost four times its initial budget, investors wouldn't have been eager to pour any more cash into the project. The producers finally admitted defeat on January 7th, when it was confirmed that the first performance of Victor Giallanella's Frankenstein would also be the last or at least the last on Broadway. Despite the show's bad rap, the original version of Giallanella's play, the one first performed in St. Louis, continues to be staged to this day. That's because, by most accounts, the original show is a whole lot more engaging than the heavily rewritten version that appeared on Broadway. Director Tom Moore later defended those changes, saying, quote, We did a lot of rewriting. It's not a major piece of American writing, but it was never intended to be. The play was written as a theatrical event. We didn't attempt to say anything with a message in Frankenstein. We attempted to make a grand entertainment, a spectacle, and we did. The choice to favor spectacle over narrative proved to be the wrong one, but there was at least one aspect of the production that was absolutely dead on the Broadway poster designed by artist Gilbert Lesser. His simple, stark design features the monster's outstretched red hand against an all-black background. The hand itself is formed from torn pieces of paper, evoking the patchwork skin of Frankenstein's monster. It was such a striking design that as soon as it was made public, the Museum of Modern Art expressed an interest in acquiring it. As Lesser recalled, quote, the show's folding notice wasn't even up yet when the museum called to tell me the poster had been chosen for its permanent collection. It was the highest of honors for an artist in his field and the only one for Frankenstein's short-lived run on Broadway. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks as always to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.